Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful for the body of Christ. We're so blessed and honored to be invited to be called children of God and to belong to this family and to be so loved by you that you would send your son to be our redeemer, our rescuer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for First Peter and what it teaches us about faithfulness and obedience and endurance in the face of persecution. And I pray that as we begin to study this book together, that it would settle deep in our hearts to give us a deep love for you, to teach us to trust you, to give us hope for the future. I pray that you would conform us to your word. I pray this morning that as I teach, you would guide us in truth. You would increase our wisdom. You would give us joy in our identity in Christ. And that you would truly give us hope in the the gospel that we believe. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're starting a new series through the book of 1 Peter. I'm excited to embark on this journey with you. Um, Rather than go into real clear detail on any particular passage of 1 Peter this morning, I want to begin with kind of a broad overview of this book. So you can open your Bible to 1 Peter if you're not already there. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got a little welcome table in the back. We would love for you to take one of our Bibles. You can keep it. Uh, But it's going to be a couple of minutes before we get there. So if you're like me and you have sweaty hands and keeping a finger in there wrinkles the pages, you can open later or wrinkle the pages, whatever. I'm guessing that most Christians have uh, probably a, a general idea of who the Apostle Peter is. But if we're going to study a book of the Bible named for the Apostle Peter, it seems appropriate at the beginning to review what we know of Peter or maybe teach a couple things that might be new to you. So verse 1 of this letter identifies the author as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But did you know that Peter was not the name that his mother and father gave to him at his birth? In the first chapter of John's gospel, we see that Peter was called Simon, until he met Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. It was Jesus who gave him this name Peter, or in Aramaic the name Cephas or Cephas, and the Greek version of that name being Peter, Petros, which means rock. So Peter's name means rock or stone. And I find that kind of interesting because in chapter 2 of Peter's letter, Peter's going to talk about stones. He's going to say that all who place their faith in Jesus and trust him as Lord are like living stones that are being built into a living house for the Spirit of God. That's verse 5 of chapter 2. But Peter doesn't say that, hey, and guys, my name is Rock, and so therefore I'm really important to this stone edifice that God is building for his glory. No, Peter is going to tell us in chapter 2 that the most important stone in this church that God is building is Jesus himself. So although Peter's name means rock, Peter understands a very important fundamental truth of the Christian faith that the church is built on the rock of Christ alone. 
All right, so Peter was Simon until he met Jesus. Jesus gave him this new identity. That identity is illustrated in his name. But the most important thing about that identity is that it is spiritual or supernatural in nature. Peter didn't just get a new name. He got a complete new identity. And Peter needed this new identity, didn't he? If you've read the Gospels and you've met this man in the story that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John tell us, then we find there that he's not a very exemplary guy. Peter is uh, maybe the, the crazy friend that you grew up with. He's maybe not the kind of guy that you, when you first meet him, want to model your life after. In fact, if you wanted to start a global movement led by wise and sensible leaders, then Peter was probably not the first person you would have looked for. He was brash and impulsive, full of passion, and for that we can praise him, but he wasn't very mature. He wasn't very patient. Remember, he's the guy who, uh, when Jesus warned his disciples that the Messiah would ultimately die and be crucified, Peter told Jesus, look, Jesus, if all these other guys abandon you and they bail on you, don't worry, Jesus. I will be faithful. I will be standing there with you when the trials come. And then Jesus told Peter, actually, Peter, when it really comes down to it and things become pressing, you're going to deny me. Not once, Peter, actually. You're going to deny me three times. You're going to have three chances, Peter, to say that you are my ally, and in every one of them, you're going to fail. And Jesus was right, because even with that warning, even knowing that that would happen, Peter bailed on Jesus when push came to shove, denied him. And if that's the kind of guy that Peter was, then why would the Bible contain a letter of instruction from that guy, right? Jokingly, sometimes I say, if you want to read a book on how to plant a church, my book would be how not to plant a church, right? You don't want to learn how to do this from me. You probably don't want to learn how to follow Jesus from Peter. But as we're going to see when we read this letter together over the next several months, We're going to come to learn about how this new identity that God gave to this man, Peter, would radically and fundamentally change him. So that when the Gospels close and the book of Acts opens and the Spirit of God descends on the church, like that, we find Peter leading the church with wisdom and courage. Because Christ in Peter is going to make this man a new man, a man with patience a man who's bold to face the hardships that will come his way because he associates himself with Jesus. A man with wisdom, a man with faithfulness to Christ, where once he abandoned him, now Peter will remain steadfast. So the point I'm trying to make here is that Peter met Jesus and Jesus changed him. And in this letter, I hope that The same will happen to us as we look at what Peter teaches us about his encounter with Christ. My prayer is that we too will meet Jesus and Jesus will change us. Now all told, Peter's ministry would last more than 30 years. It would begin in Jerusalem, really at Pentecost. 
Eventually, he would make his way through Samaria, and eventually Peter would end up in Rome as a prisoner for his faith. An ancient historian named Eusebius records for us that in Rome, Peter was finally crucified. That's how his life came to an end. And not wanting to be exactly like Jesus, his Lord and Master, Peter begged to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And this leads us to the primary purpose then for Peter's letter, to strengthen and encourage the church of Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. At the core of Peter's letter, he wants to strengthen the people of God as they face persecution for their faith in Jesus. Peter's letter was probably written around 63 or 64 AD. Up until this point, Christianity had been largely accepted in the Roman Empire because it was seen as a kind of offshoot of Judaism. Uh, The Jews were known to the Romans to be a rebellious lot, but they were essentially accepted under Roman rule. And so Christianity, when it was seen as a kind of sect of Judaism, was basically uh, accepted in Rome until the early 60s. It was at least tolerated. But as Christianity continued to spread after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it began to attract more attention And the more attention it attracted, the attention became less positive. It wasn't always good attention. So you have another historian named Tacitus, a Roman, who said that as Christianity continued to grow throughout the Roman world, the Romans felt increasingly as if Christians hated the human race. That's what they were known for, hating humanity. You might even say that the Romans viewed Christians as being on the wrong side of history because the Christians refused to celebrate what made Rome great, what the Romans thought set them apart from every other culture, things that the Romans celebrated. See, the empire of Rome was very nationalistic, and it was thought that there must be a kind of national unity that would coalesce the people of Rome so that the glory of Rome could be maintained, so that the pagan gods of Rome could be appeased, so that Rome would last. And the Romans thought that anyone who was unwilling to participate in this great Roman project was undermining progress. They were guilty of being against humanity. Well, as that sentiment increased across the empire in July of AD 64, an event occurred that would really kind of set the trajectory of the church for quite some time. A massive fire broke out in the city of Rome and burned to the ground 10 of the 14 districts of the Roman city. The emperor was a man named Nero, and at this point he was already widely seen among his people as not only being a terrible tyrant, but being borderline crazy. And rumors began to spread among the Romans that Nero actually intentionally burned the city of Rome to the ground because he didn't like the way that it was laid out and he wanted to rebuild it in kind of his own image according to his own desires. And as those rumors began to grow in popularity, Nero needed a scapegoat that he could blame for the destruction of the city of Rome. And he found a powerful scapegoat in the fledgling movement of Christ. 
And so he blamed the Christians for the fire that broke out in Rome, and he began a nasty campaign of persecution against any Christian that he could find in and around the city of Rome. And it's recorded that Nero actually took those Christians, he nailed them to crosses, soaked them in oil, and lit them on fire to provide light for his dinner parties at his palace gardens. Now, Peter's not writing to Christians in Rome. We heard that in the first couple of verses. That's true. But the slanderous accusations that Nero painted over the Christians stuck and spread. And in time, the whole Roman Empire began to loathe and hate these followers of Christ because they refused to be good citizens and bow to the emperor and sacrifice to their pagan gods and engage in these festivals of lust and gluttony. And so maybe Peter, 1 Peter was written before Rome burned to the ground, maybe after. It was somewhere in that time frame. But in either case, this letter would be a much needed encouragement for the church. Because Nero would begin a campaign of persecution upon Christians that would really ebb and flow, but essentially define the Christian experience in the empire of Rome for the first 300 years of the church. Throughout Rome, then, Christians were sometimes betrayed by their neighbors. When the neighbors found out they were followers of Christ, they would rat them out. They were sometimes crucified or fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum, in the gladiator games. They were sometimes tortured. Sometimes their goods were plundered from their homes without consequence. They were viewed by the wealthy and intelligent among Rome as regressive, foolish, stupid, unintelligent, loathsome, because they, as Christians, wouldn't participate in the things that defined Roman culture. Now look, since the founding of our country, Christianity has had a privileged place in our culture. But you must have noticed that's changing. I can't imagine I'm the only one who feels the tide of change. We, I think, are returning to a time that will be much more like those early centuries of the Christian movement, where Christians were hated because they would not bow to the emperor, they would not participate in debauchery, they would not honor the false gods of Rome. And for those reasons, they were accused of being antisocial, a kind of plague or obstacle upon the progress that everybody anticipated Rome was moving in. And today, we're seeing Christianity in America experience an increasingly hostile attitude towards our faith and our practice. I think three big areas where we see this, and this is not, you know, a description of all of the ways, but three big areas where the crosshairs of our culture are slowly finding their target on Christianity are the areas of abortion, sexual perversion, and what I would say is kind of vaguely called the common good, which what couldn't fall under the category of the common good. But over the last year, numerous Christian 
pregnancy resource centers have been firebombed by pro-abortion advocates, and the federal government has just refused to, to, to do any kind of investigation or bring any kind of criminal charges against those vandals. Meanwhile, peaceful Christians praying outside of abortion clinics have had the FBI show up at their house to haul them away to jail to prosecute them for getting in the way of pro-abortion efforts. Children are being taught as part of the public school curriculum all kinds of vile things about human sexuality and perversion regarding gender. Perverse men show up at public libraries dressed up like women to read books to little kids about gender ideology. And on the other hand, you've got a Christian photographer who doesn't want to participate in taking pictures at a gay wedding, and the full force of the government is brought to bear to ruin his business and to bring them into alignment with what it is the culture demands. During COVID, we were told that for the common good of the public health, churches shouldn't gather like this because we might be guilty of spreading this virus. And, and so many of us, out of respect for the authorities, we tried what we could to agree with that practice. And we found other ways to continue to teach the word and encourage one another. But at the same time, weed stores and casinos and sports leagues continued to meet and do their various forms of worship. And that was applauded and permitted. These are just a few examples. I could list a lot more, but there's a growing anti-Christian sentiment in our country. And the truth is, it's not that bad right now. Like, you're still here. You're not in jail. You probably have not been persecuted personally for your faith. Let's not pretend that we're suffering like those early Christians suffered in order for them to bear the banner of Christ under the persecution of emperors like Nero. As Christians in America compared to other Christians around the world right now today and compared to other Christians throughout history, we actually have it still really good right now. But the direction that we're headed, I don't think it looks great for us. And unless something really radical happens, some unforeseen mass conversion to Christianity, I think First Peter is going to become a widely treasured book among Christians, once again, for the way that it encourages the people of God to be steadfast in the face of persecution and suffering in a world that's hostile to Jesus. And so, friends, I implore you, as we study this book together over the next several months, pay attention. Pay attention. This may not be the encouragement that you need this week or even this month or even this year, but maybe in the next 10 or 20 years, you yourself may be a believer who suffers unemployment because you refuse to bow to anyone except Christ. Or maybe you suffer imprisonment. Or maybe you suffer simply the hatred of a neighbor or somebody that you know because you refuse to forsake the name of Jesus and participate in the evil that is rampant in our world. And I sincerely hope I'm wrong. I hope that one of you 20 years from now will email me the YouTube video for this sermon and laugh 
and be like, remember that time and you were oh, so overblown and it didn't end up that way. I would love that. But persecution has happened through the history of the church at different times and in different places. And it may be on the horizon for you and for me. So 1 Peter is a book about suffering in order to encourage Christians. But actually, it's, it's about something way greater than suffering. Peter's letter is ultimately about the joy of Christ. That is the true theme. See, Peter doesn't write a letter of commiseration. This is not a letter of pity or sorrow or grief. Peter's not writing to complain to fellow believers about how hard things are or to get them to feel some self-pity. Peter does warn his audience not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon them to test them. But after that warning and in the midst of that warning, he tells them, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Peter's goal is to ground his audience in faith and obedience so that when the suffering and persecution comes their way, they'll be fully prepared to trust God, to rejoice in his goodness, and to look to the glory of Christ in the face of their suffering. Let's look at one example of what I'm talking about, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great way to start a letter about persecution. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Although Peter is going to spend quite a bit of time talking about suffering and trials and giving a challenging call to obedience, he opens the letter with praise and adoration. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In every season of our life, this God who has rescued us and loves us is worthy of our praise. And Peter tells us exactly why in verses 4 through 5. Because we've received mercy. Because he's caused us to be born again. Because we have a living hope. An eternal inheritance since Jesus himself is alive and living. And God is worthy of all of our praise and all of our confidence because right now in heaven, God stands guarding this great treasure, our eternal inheritance that he has won for us. 
We are destined to be the beneficiaries of all of the riches of Jesus Christ for all eternity with God our Father who loves us and has made us his own. Suffering is incomparable to that truth. And Peter goes on because in verse 5 we're told that we not only have an eternal inheritance in heaven that waits for us, but right now in this life God's favor rests upon his children as we go through trials and suffering and persecution. Even in those trials we are told that God himself exerts his unlimited power to safeguard us as his treasure, to be with us to the very end. And so again, in verse 6, we rejoice, even though for a period of time in this life, we will face trials, and we will experience sorrow and pain. We rejoice because we know that our inheritance is sure. It's sure through Jesus because he rose from the dead, and because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we can rejoice even now in our trials, because we know that those trials test our faith. And we will pass the test of our faith, because as Peter explains in verse 7, it's the power of Jesus that enables us to pass the test, so that Jesus gets all the praise and all the glory. But of course, we would delight to see Jesus now, wouldn't we? Peter knows that. In person, while we walk through these trials, wouldn't it be a blessing to have Christ with us? And yet, Peter tells us we are confident even though we do not see him. We believe in him and we know that he is indeed with us, that he loves us. And we hope in him because we believe the testimony that he rose from the dead and he lives. And so again, we rejoice We rejoice with a glorious joy because Christ has saved our souls now and forevermore. That's how Peter begins a letter that he's going to go on and talk about suffering in. A letter that deals a lot with persecution. Not with grumbling or lamenting, but with rejoicing. Is that how you think about persecution? as a means to bring about rejoicing? Is this how you think about suffering and trials? Not as a grounds to complain, but as grounds to praise. There are many Christians today who already feel like they're being persecuted because our country no longer favors Christianity, and the result of their feeling persecuted is they go about whining and complaining. And I I feel that temptation, I understand that, but that's not what the Bible commands us to do in the face of trials or tribulation or persecution. No, we should take it like a man, we should smile and be glad. We should respond to persecution with all righteousness, with love for our enemies, with greater faith and trust for our God who loves us, setting our mind on the glory of Jesus Christ, joyfully receiving any reproach that comes our way that we bear in his name. We should respond to persecution confident that we will pass the test. Not because we're strong, but because of the grace that sustains us. And we should rejoice that we're being given this opportunity to be more fully formed into the image 
of Christ, according to the plan of God. And we should rejoice because we know at the end of all of it, we will stand victorious because Christ is victorious. That's why Peter can start this letter with rejoicing. Because he knows the trials and persecution, they're temporary. And Peter knows the power of God to take evil and work it for his good purposes. And Peter knows that our salvation is sure because he saw the risen Christ. He knows that God loves us and that in the end all will be well. And so what could there possibly be to complain about or be fearful about or despair over? As he says at the end of his letter in chapter 5 verse 10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen. So I hope now we have a picture of Peter and the motivation behind his letter, but I want to quickly zoom in on one word that Peter likes to use, and I'll try to do this briefly. It's the Greek word timios, and it means precious or something of very great value, something of exceptional value. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. We're told that the tested genuineness of our faith is more precious than gold. Faith is precious. But actually, I want you to notice something. Peter does not say faith is more precious than gold. Peter says that faith which has been tested and has been proven genuine is more precious than gold. Think about this. Can there be any true faith if it is not tested? Do you really believe something if when push comes to shove and the difficulty comes, you don't cling to it? You say you love Jesus and you say you trust him and God will test that faith to determine whether it's true. He will apply pressure to see if you stand. He will bring difficulties into your marriage to see if you trust what he commands. He will place burdens upon your character to see if you really desire to be like Christ. He'll press down on you with suffering to see if you actually believe that he's good. He'll bring persecution to determine if you will be loyal to him alone. He'll bring hardship to find out if you will cling to him. God is using all of these things to test you and to determine whether your heart is actually true in this faith that you say that you have. And notice what it says at the end of verse 7 here about this precious faith that's tested. When your faith is tested and it is found to be genuine, Peter does not say that it will be to the praise of your glory. No, Peter reminds us that at the end all of the honor will go to Jesus who is revealed. In other words, your faith that, it's, that is being tested, it'll be a story not of your greatness, but of the greatness of Jesus who sustains you. It'll be his grace, his power, his endurance that allows you to pass this test. Christians, do you know this? Christians are people with a limitless capacity for suffering. 
and hardship. Not because that capacity is present in us, not because we are strong in ourselves, but because Christ is in us. And so our faith must be tested so that we can be broken and brought to the end of ourselves because it is at the end of ourselves that we truly know that we trust in Christ alone. So we don't rely on our goodness, our efforts, our power, so that we rely only in Christ. Now look down at verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's our word again, precious. The precious faith we have tested by trials, it is a powerful and effective faith to change us like it changed Peter because It is found in the precious blood of Christ. All our hope, all of our joy, all of our confidence in suffering and hardship and persecution, it all depends upon the finished work of Jesus, his precious blood. Why does your faith have power? Because it looks to Christ. Why will you prevail over the trials that will grieve you for a season of life? Because of the blood of the Lamb. Why can you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? Because you're covered in the precious blood of Christ. One more use of this word, chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is called not only a precious stone, but he's called the cornerstone. In the history of construction, maybe you know, the cornerstone is the first stone that's laid. It's at the base and it holds all the weight and it sets the walls straight in their lines. It bears the brunt of the building. So Jesus is the precious stone upon which we ourselves rest. He's precious in the eyes of God because he is the Son of God, and he's precious in the eyes of those who turn to him in faith because we rest on him. Why will the church stand in the face of persecution? Because it's built on the cornerstone of Christ. If we believe in him and his word and we trust in his work, if we cling to him through the testing of trials, then we will never be put to shame. Now I'll end with this. Think about Peter for a second. Do you think that Peter really believed all of this? Do you think that Peter believed that he could rejoice in persecution as those Roman soldiers stripped him naked publicly and nailed him to a cross upside down? Do you think that Peter really thought that whoever believes in Jesus will never be put to shame as he was slowly hoisted up 
in the public square, hanging upside down from that cross as he slowly dripped minute by minute his blood away, dying for Jesus? Do you think Peter really believed it? Do you think Peter really believed what he wrote, that those who suffer according to God's will should entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good as hour by hour his life leaked away and he died for this man, Jesus? I do. I think Peter believed it. I, I am quite confident that even as he hung there on that cross, slowly dying, Peter felt with absolute confidence those words with which he ends his letter. After, after you've suffered just a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you.